KG hidden. Okay. Did you know that your pupils are the last part to stop working when you die? Did y'all know that? Did not know that. They dilate. Where do pirates go to get their hooks? <laughs> At the bait and tackle store. Yeah. <laughs> Second hand stores. Second hand <laughs> stores. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you hear the joke about the paper? Ah, uh, never mind. It's uh, terrible. Okay, let's get it. Do the one about the cremation. Oh, cremation one. Okay, let's see here. Oh, yeah, because it kind of sounds like me. When I die, I want to be cremated. It's my last chance to have a smoking hot body. <laughs> I mean, last chance. <laughs> oh. You're welcome. All right, Gene, I'll do the rest next, next Sunday. Okay, so we're in 2 Kings 15. I finally finished studying 2 Kings Monday. Wow. It's mm. like 20. I've been, well, this is less than like 31. So however many weeks that, because I know we've you know had a couple like, Kathy taught and stuff, but it's been a, a while, over half the year basically. So I'm very excited to start staying on the goodness, uh, which I think would be good after saying these darn kings, depressing and aggravating. All right, so we're in uh, uh, 2 Kings 15, 32. And last week we studied about Uzziah and how he got too big for his britches. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah. In those days the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, against Judah. Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried, uh, yeah, and buried with his fathers in the city of David his father, and Ahab his son, Ahaz his son reigned in his place. Always, uh, I'm like, what does Jotham remind me of? Is it Gotham City? Probably. <laughs> Jotham of Gotham. Okay, so <clears throat> we ended last week with delayed judgment um, well, and its effect on the wicked heart. So I, I want to read it again in Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And we talked about set. Like you had the one guy that was Uzziah that was set to follow the Lord, you have people that are set to do evil. So we know it's like a very intentional thing uh, when people are set to do evil. You know, to me, it's almost like, and I might not be biblically correct, I don't know, but I, I kind of like have divided up people into two camps almost. Uh, you've got one that's like the, the everyday sinner. You know, they're... They don't know Jesus. They're sinning because they don't know. There's ignorance there. And it doesn't mean they're any less responsible because the, the issue is not the sin. The issue is do you believe? And uh, so you've got that group. But then you have the other camp where there are people that live every day to do wicked, to do evil. And typically with those type of people, you could add a hostility toward God and toward his people. Does that, I mean, would y'all agree with that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, even like if you go into Christianity, you have those that are an average Christian that 
their life is they go to church on Sundays, they go to church on Wednesdays, they're an upstanding family, uh, business people, whatever it is. They may love the Lord, uh, but they just go through the normal motions of Christianity. Then you have those that are determined to live out their destiny. They are set to do whatever it is he tells them to do that may be outside the box. So it's kind of like those that dwell in the city of David also live in Jerusalem, but those that live in Jerusalem may not necessarily be in the city of David. So it's kind of that idea of radical versus maybe not as radical. Does that make sense? Don't you think yeah. that, or is, I'll ask the question, is that um, that they've made a decision almost to have their mind turned over? They talk about turning over to a reprobate mind. Romans 1, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And if you look at like this you know, situation here where he's talking about Jotham, he did good things and yet the judgment has already started. So when it says, in those days the Lord began to send Rezin the king of Syria and Pekah the son of Ramalia against Judah. So there's, there's a chastising that's occurring. Their protection is being lifted in degrees because the degrees that they're being listed, uh, lifted is meant to cause them to repent before it's too late. And, um, and they obviously don't. So to me, it's like, um, you know, we live in the age of grace. You can become born again. But in, in this, I don't know, when did seeker-friendly churches start? Was it like the 90s or 2000s? Might have been like the 2000s where, you know, we, and it was a noble idea. I don't know why we always need to change what God is doing. I think if we would have left it alone and just continued as the book of Acts, we would probably have everything buttoned up by now. But instead, we add these ideas of what it should be. And so, maybe it's the 80s. What kind of church? I'm going to say Seeker friendly. 80s. Yeah, it might have been the I 80s. I think it was the beginning because in the 70s, we had a big lay movement. Yeah, and, and the Jesus big, movement. Jesus, and I think it was a backlash almost of that. Yeah. So you have, well, but before that, you had the whole holiness movement, mm -hmm. which got really legalistic and religious, right? So they swung the pendulum. They swung the pendulum over to, well, we don't want to be like that anymore. We want to attract a new generation. I'll explain secret friendly, Richard. Okay. <laughs> so we wanted to get a whole new generation in the building. And so we began to attract them by music, lighting, mm -hmm. coffee shops, and I don't have any problem with the end of programs. Uh, you know, family-friendly mm -hmm. things. And smoke, again, smoke and yeah, and again, effect. I don't have any problem with any of that, but the problem is that we we remove the necessity for repentance. Mm -hmm. We remove the need, like, you're going to hell. You have to be born again. You have to believe in mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. And by the way, yes, He is the answer to all of your problems, but He does require all of you. Like he wants to be Lord of all of you. And so we took out, I guess, the oomph of the, the message, the, the, the kingdom message is the king is returning. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. He is coming back and he's going to be, bring his rewards with him. So he went all the way over to the seeker friendly. And again, it had noble intentions because there was a legalism. There was a thing that got in there. We swung all the way over to love, you know, God loves everybody so much that hell doesn't exist any longer. You know, it's just a garbage heap outside of Jerusalem. That's what that means. There's no such thing. So now we've got a problem where we have lost our relevance because you never gain your relevance with society by being like society. Okay? That's the thing. And we make the mistake of thinking that. And uh, so even like... Uh, at the Bible study on Saturday, there's a scripture. If someone could, uh, it's a passion. I think it's 139. Uh, let me see if I can find the exact. What book? Uh, Psalm. Uh, let's see. Oh, page three. That's not it. I may have to. 
borrow that for a second, Kathy, to find it. Um, Verse 23, God, I invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. Put me to the test and sift through all my anxious cares. See if there's any path of pain I'm walking on and lead me back to your glorious everlasting ways, the path that brings me back to you. That's what's happening here. He's trying to get them off any path of pain because what's coming are, you know, children dying and women dying and exile and the land being taken over by wild beasts. And so it's just, uh, he's trying to stop it. And, but the thing is, is when they, when we read this scripture, everybody's like, oh, you know, like that's a hard prayer to pray. I mean, you know, I, man, you gotta, you gotta definitely trust, you know, and I'm like, no, no, it's safety. If you, if you know him as father, that right there is safety. I would be praying that every single day. But I remember back in the day of being in a performance mindset where that was actually a scary thought. You know, like people say, oh, don't pray for patience. What's the implication? That if you pray for patience, something bad is going to happen to you. Right? That's, that's the implication. And like I told... Uh, I think I told you guys Friday, how can you trust a father if you don't know one minute if he's going to smack you in the face and the next minute give you a hug? The only fathers that do that are abusers. Now, there's one thing to get a, a nice, good, well-rounded spanking, you know. But like we've studied with all of the levels of judgment, he always begins with instruction, padia. He always goes to that. Instruction and then action. That's what he expects. So... The point is, is that if you don't understand the nature of Father, things like this are going to be scary. And you think that He sends bad things to you. Now, with light of that, when we look at what's happening here in this verse where it says, the Lord began to send, the idea is that, again, they're going into a process of... Um, judgment where the protection the hand of God is lifted so he didn't go over to the kings and say hey go destroy my people he, he has been holding off these nations the whole time okay now his protection is lifting and they're starting to view Israel as someone that they can take we're seeing the exact same thing in this country we're still very very protected a lot of the stuff that's going on in our cities are actually decisions have been made, but we're starting to see a shift geopolitically that we need to be aware of and we need to pray into that God lead us back to the path, search us, you know, make sure that, um, I mean, I even prayed years ago, I prayed over and over, be ruthless with me. Don't let anything, anything that could cause me to fall, I want to finish well. You know, I want to be like um, Billy Graham. I mean, his entire, he never swayed from his message. If you, what's his uh, son's name? Is it Franklin? When, no matter what he's on, you, you have to know Jesus. You have to be born again. He sent his son to die. I mean, it's over and over he says it. So we have where you've got people that are ignorant of their state. How can people believe if they don't hear the good news? So we went to this seeker-friendly thing. We've become irrelevant to society. Now we're paying the consequences of it. Now it's time to be the ones that are the leaven that's hidden. All the small groups, all the house groups, that are radical. They're on fire for God. They know what their uh, assignment is. And they're executing it quietly and stealthily because seeker-friendly paradigms are falling. If you look at, um, you know, Hillsong and what's happening there, our own local uh, church, what happened there, seeker-friendly is falling off because 
Jesus was never seeker friendly, ever. He was friendly to sinners, but he did not dilute his message so that people didn't become offended. And when you think of like Eli and Samuel, the word was rare in those days. The lamp was almost out because Eli wasn't doing his duties, right? It's kind of the same thing. People don't want to hear truth. Well, you remember the king that called in the prophets and the one prophet was being sarcastic and facetious. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it's, you're going to do fine and mm -hmm. you're going to win and everything's going to go mm -hmm. great. And he'd look at him and say, you know, tell me the truth. And then he laid down and told the truth that God And then he told. got thrown in prison. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's it, you know, mm -hmm. is that king knew he was mm -hmm. not telling the truth. Yes. He wanted to know the truth, but he didn't like the truth. Right. That's pretty much what Exactly. And there is a battle over truth. You know, you're, you hear people, your truth, my truth. No, there's one truth. There's one truth. And he's a person. So then you got like this whole truth advisory board and stuff that the government, the biggest liar on the planet, wants to oversee truth. So uh, truth is not relative. Truth is concrete. And the more it's taught, uh, I think it was Jesus mentioned it, Paul mentioned it, that people, or maybe it was Peter, that as the age progresses, people will not want sound doctrine. They won't want truth. But there are some that do. They want what sounds and feels. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And I, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. So, and I'm not... I'm not against at all lights and music. I mean, at youth, we had some of the most anointed worship there was. The lights didn't bother uh, anyone. It was we were after Holy Spirit. And uh, so I guess for those that maybe wonder, you know, like, am what, I, am what I am doing, is that relevant? Is it going to have an impact? Because it seems like it's not. Yes, stay the course. Because eventually, and this was a prophetic word actually to the hub, eventually the shaking is going to become so severe in the earth, it'll be like, um, who was that horse that they made that, was it Biscuit or whoever, that they made the movie on? And it, it was a lady named Lori actually told us this word. Secretariat. It might have been Secretariat, but one of those horses was around when the great earthquake hit San Francisco. And what was happening in the culture is there was a big epoch, a transition. And I've said, we're in an epoch for sure. And the transition was people didn't want to buy uh, horseless carriages. They, it scared them. They were like, no, you know, we'll just ride our horses. So they're trying to like, how can we get the, the nation to see the need for these horseless carriages? And so then the earthquake happened. All of a sudden the horses could not get to the places fast enough, but the cars could. All of a sudden, cars became very important. Ambulances, and it, that earthquake shifted people's ideas on what was needed. And so the lady told us, she said, there's going to come a point where people are going to see the need for what we have, which is community and family, right? And uh, then Friday, I was in Lubbock with a um, friend, Chrissy, Everywhere we went, just so you guys know, we saw Hub. Hub this, Hub that, Hub City. And I'm like, man, I'm seeing Hub a lot. She goes, man, we're seeing Hub everywhere, huh? And I said, yeah, I've noticed that. She goes, huh, you know, because she knows our place is called the Hub. So anyway, don't don't lose heart. But back to our um, Ecclesiastes 8.11, we do live in grace. There is the ability to be born again so that the hand of judgment is eliminated. However, judgment is like a train. It's not, it cannot be stopped. It is going to arrive, uh, and hopefully, at least for our country, we'll repent before uh, it's too late, but judgment will come uh, to those that are intent on doing evil. So it'll either be physical death, premature, or it'll be the after death that is eternal. And, uh, and I find it interesting. It's like the Lord is really on, because, uh, you know, I read y'all Friday that, you know, scripture that uh, I will keep silent when I'm um, in the presence of the wicked. <laughs> and then it goes, you know, the pain grew more painful in my heart. It's like, help me, Lord. You know, <laughs> so there 
something this morning? And I was like, and I told Mike something. I don't remember now. Throw <laughs> away the key because I was determined to be silent. But a, a manifestation of the fear of the Lord is how we care for our mouth, right? And so the challenge is that if a person is set to do evil, is there an ability to repent? Uh, I believe so, but there is a point where you cross the line and there is no more repentance. It's like Esau, who he, even with many tears, tried to get back what was lost and there was no room for repentance. And there's even in um, Genesis 15 where it talks about that uh, in the, the prophetic word to Abraham that basically you're going to die in peace, but your, your um, people after you are going to be enslaved in a country for what, 490 years or 470 plus years or something like that until the cup of iniquity is full for the ites. It might have been the Amorites if I'm not mistaken. The cup of iniquity is full. Full is not when you're to the top. Full is when it overflows. So when you see an overflowing of wickedness, that might be when you're in trouble. Okay, so in the age of grace, to be clear, there is one thing that man will be judged for, and that is unbelief in Jesus Christ. That's it. All sin is a byproduct of unbelief. Okay? And that's why it requires us to believe in the one whom he sent. So in John 6, 27 through 29, do not work for the food that perishes, but for, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal, which is Holy Spirit. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So, what that tells us is if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, then believe. That's it. Your full-time occupation is belief. Okay? Not believing, I'm believing for, and I'm believing this, and I'm believing, you know. No, I have believed. So your occupation is to believe in Jesus Christ. Then in John 17, 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the implication is that belief and knowing God is eternal life, which means on this earth we can live in eternity. So when you're in a place of belief, you're in a place of eternity. Spiritually speaking, we're seated in heavenly places with Him, right? All of our preaching, all of our teaching, all of our business, everything we do should be from that place of eternity out. And one of the reasons we're having such a rough time, even among Christians, is there's no eternal focus. One aspect of the fear of the Lord is that you are eternally focused knowing that the decisions you make now will impact you forever, even as Christians. You, you know, how you live now will determine your role in this future kingdom on the earth. Uh, and the greatest thing to possess and to pursue is love, right? True love, not humanistic love that's being taught in seeker-friendly churches. <laughs> and, uh, and so here we have this thing that belief, it has always, always been about belief. Remember, with Abraham, he said, Abraham believed, past tense, God, and it was accounted. So God added up the value of Abraham's belief in him and of what he said, and he decided it equaled righteousness before the righteous one even came. Okay? So that's what's uh, exciting is that it's always been about belief. It will always be about belief. So like I tell people, if you are struggling in a certain area, you have to trace the lie. Because all unbelief is sourced in a lie. There's an origin story that is causing you to believe a lie so that now everything is filtered through that lie, including anything you read in the Bible. So it's like 
your your soul cannot be the instructor. Your spirit must instruct your soul. Because your spirit man is the only one or part of you that is perfect that Jesus Christ dwells in in the form of His Holy Spirit, right? So allow your spirit man to instruct you and I pretty much guarantee you it's going to be identity. Well, and part of it, I... Oh, because heavier than I this, thought. I was... Uh, <laughs> man. I was thinking of this morning on the way down here. You know, we pray... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. This is in heaven. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that we can have the same kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? No. No, we don't. And why don't we? You know, and then I was like, well, why don't I? Because, you know, I mean, the same reason. Because when you're little, kids get hurt because they jump off of something thinking they can, they must know they can fly this time, you know. Yeah. And then they get hurt, mm -hmm. and they realize, oh, well, gee, I can't do that. And so from some experiences and some things we've been told and et cetera, et cetera, we become to be, our mind is formed that certain things just aren't possible. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that is a something that we have to work with with God. Absolutely. To reveal and to uh, remove uh, different things because you know, I mean, God, we know God is the God of the possible, not the impossible. Right. Yeah, so. it's kingdom now, kingdom later, right? And so when you look at hope, does not disappoint. For some people, that needs to be their motto for the year. Hope does not disappoint. Now, obviously, it's not you're hoping for this or hoping for that. It's hope in God. Mm -hmm. It never will disappoint. So. Then it's like, okay, then why did certain things not happen? That's a good time to ask questions mm -hmm. because, like, you know, me and Mike were talking the other day. It's all, the disconnect is always going to be here with yeah. us, right? But hope is extremely powerful. I think, other than love, hope is one of the most powerful things you can have. And I didn't realize the extent of the power of hope until we started until we started doing our coaching intensives because it has been a hundred percent for people that didn't have a lot of hope, that when they realized that they actually could have the life they wanted, they had to then learn to steward hope because they didn't have it. It was a very scary thing, a very powerful thing. It caused a lot of emotions. Uh, some people were even angry. Uh, and so they had to then decide, do they really want to hope? Or just go back to the way it was, right? Because you build this it's little wall around yourself. To protect. To protect. Mm -hmm. And that means lowering the wall. Absolutely. And, and well, I remember being be at churches like, well, you know, I don't want your hopes to get up. Okay, so when you're, when you are, you've demonstrated faith in God for something and someone comes to you and they try to tamp down on that faith because they don't want you to get your hope up, mm -hmm. who's the one without faith? Because it ain't the one that's already believed and has received in prayer. It's the one that's... That, to me, is astonishing. But you see it all the time. We don't want your hopes... Well, now it, again, goes to character and trust. Mm -hmm. So, again, if you believe he is good all of the time, there's no fear to hope or expect good things. If you even look in the original language, the word hope is an expectation of good things. How many of us expect bad things? Even passively will say things, idle words, like we talked about Friday uh, and Saturday is the same thing. It's all about words that will speak these things without even thinking what we're saying. So as you believe in your heart, that's what you say, right? So belief, it's always going to be about belief. But like we've learned with our James study, you've got to have faith that is stronger and on a different level than demons. And I actually think a lot of Christians have less because James says that demons not only believe, they know, they know he's God, but they also tremble. You know, again, if you go back to the seeker-friendly mo model where people just walk into a service, worship has started, they're talking, they're, mm -hmm. you know, getting their coffee and blah, blah. I can guarantee you that if God walked into the room in physical form, there is no way you'd say, oh, it's just you, and go get coffee. I'll talk to you later. I you know what I mean? 
But you got people that that's what they think is going on, that worship is just some, you know, little thing that we do before the teaching, right, and the announcements. And the fact is, you're getting the king of kings in the room. So just because you don't see him with your eyes doesn't mean that his presence isn't here any you know, any less. I mean, that's just a height of foolishness. And so how we treat his presence can be a strong indicator. Do you actually believe he is here? That like he says he is when you worship? And even like when you worship is important because if your heart is disengaged and you find yourself singing the words that now you're into complacent worship, but when you're engaged and you're thinking about him and your mind may try to take you off, but then you bring it right back in, now you're fighting the good fight, right? You're like, no. You know, if I get an idea or something, I'll write it down and then I'll go back to worship or whatever it is. Because sometimes he'll do that. Sometimes he'll start getting all these ideas going, you know, when you're worshiping. You just got to have somewhere to write it down. But it, I think we would probably show the mayor we would probably show the president of the United States. I probably wouldn't the current, but you know maybe a good one. We would probably show people that are dignitaries more respect than we do Father, Jesus, Holy Ghost, and worship. So it's important. Are the things we say and do reflecting the belief that we think we have? And that's where that examination can come in, you know? And uh, I told someone the other day, you know, things are progressive. You know, at first, if you're fighting something in your body, please don't agree with it. Please don't say you have it. If you are fighting, it might have been at the Friday thing, if you're fighting flu 10 days, who cares? Keep fighting to the bitter end, you know. And uh, keep saying, I was healed at the cross. It, actually, before, when he took those stripes that settled it. It's over the end. But we can so quickly agree with diagnoses, which I think was interesting on the deliverance training, that that came out, the agreement with diagnoses and how we had to cast some things out because of that. You know, So it's just we're too passive when it comes to um, our words and beliefs and our practices and even... Um, I think sometimes maybe treat lightly the presence of God. Well, and I just don't think also that we get a full um, understanding of our identity. Mm -hmm. If they say, you know, you say it, you can have it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and so people are saying, you know, I'll have a new car, whatever. But then they don't really think about it. That's everything. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not just like, oh, I'm going to need a, you know, a Cadillac today or a whatever. And a good example, but just if they go in there and they say that, oh yeah, I'm just believing for that and I'm saying it, but then they'll say every other negative thing. Well, not only that, but they then won't take the action that is required. Because what we learn, mm -hmm. faith always has to be combined with action. You know, you can be saying and decreeing and confessing all day long, but if you don't actually take action to maybe, okay, Holy Spirit, how am I going to get that Cadillac? Do you want me to put this mm -hmm. much money out? Do I just need to, like, is this going to be a, a straight up someone comes to my house and gives, you know, like, what is my role in cooperating with the miracle? <coughs> we have to cooperate with the miracle. Desire is a source of discipline. So whatever it is that you see that you want, that you're de decreeing, you have to combine that with the supernatural with the practical, right? I've had people literally send me a couple thousand dollars or $500 taped to the door in cash and didn't get stolen. That in itself is a miracle. Not the money on the door. That happened twice. So that stuff happens, but where's your faith leading you? Because if you're sitting back in your recliner watching TV expecting the Cadillac to show up at your door, it probably won't. <laughs> you know? So now, none of this is in my notes, but I just think it's important. Belief is a starting point. Knowing Him as intimately as possible on this earth is the most noble pursuit you can have. Because if you're going after Him, you're going after love. Right? Because He is love. And the fruit of that pursuit will extend past this life. The wicked only see here. They take no thought to their eternal home, and some don't even believe it exists. Therefore, they have determined to do everything they want to do in this life because once dead, 
It's over, right? You simply, simply, simply sleep. Living without eternity and focus is a breeding ground for evil deeds. Now, like I said, the word set in Ecclesiastes 8.11 is the exact same word used to describe Uzziah's determination to follow Jesus at first and then his determination to perform priestly duties. So it's an intentional action, meaning that those referred to in Ecclesiastes 8.11 are those that are actually devoting their lives to evil and evil deeds. Okay? So they're not a passive sinner. They're actively seeking out wickedness. Now you got Jotham, and he stayed within the status quo. Again, not getting rid of those darn high places. But now we've got nations that are starting to come against Judah because of the idolatry. Okay, now Ahaz in particular is aggravating. Um, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned uh, 16 years, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, um, the evil that he went, I think probably sealed the fate uh, there was uh, Manasseh. Have we studied Manasseh yet, or is that in my studies? Okay, because he's coming up. He's actually the trigger point. He started the countdown, but this guy definitely didn't help him. He accelerated it. Um, so he walked in the ways of Israel, which was gross idolatry, killed his son uh, to a god, uh, sacrificed and made offerings, and I bet you, like, I don't where it says under every green tree he could find. Um... It almost makes you wonder if maybe there was like some sexual component to it as well because a lot of the idolatry did have that. So I don't know if that's the case, but there was probably some sexual sin there as well. Well, isn't, wasn't that, um, oh, well, I can't even think of the names, where the, the, the woman and the son married and... Oh, that was uh, Nimrod and um, Samaraeus. But they mm -hmm. were, and there's something about an evergreen tree. Oh, uh, and that's that, what that means? Oh, yeah. In that uh, uh, worship. Mm -hmm. You know, at, at one point they talk about the women with the greenery and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And, and that all, it's all part of that adult, idolatry. And I don't know if that's what this is referring yeah, to. Yeah, it just makes you wonder. Because, I mean, in, in, in the Lord even equated their idolatry as lifting up their skirts and having relations with every God they could, you know. And so... Um, usually the under the tree, and even the Song of Solomon talks about being under the tree. I think it was like the apple tree or something. So I bet there was a sexual component there. Now you'll see, his, again, this whole name thing. Like I thought me and Mike were ridiculous with nicknames. This is incredible here. So we, his full name, Je Jehoahaz, is in the records of Tiglath Pileser III, the Assyrian king, as one of the kings that paid him tribute. So Ahaz is in his records. Uh, they shortened his name, thank goodness, to Ahaz. That's called a hypocortisticon, which means the name is shortened and reflects confidence in God's imminent presence. His full name means Yahweh has possessed. So in other words, they shorten it and they take out the part of it because they trust the Lord, I guess. Okay, well he didn't, obviously. Uh, let's see, verses 5 through 9. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, offered Elith for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elith. And the Edomites came to Elith, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me. From the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. So he goes to Assyria, the very people that have attacked Israel. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. 
And the king of Assyria listened to him. He marched up against Damascus, took it, carrying the people captive to Kerr, and they killed Rezin. Uh, now, here's some behind-the-scenes, okay, from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. While Ahaz was co-regent, Rezin and Pekah pressured him to join their coalition with the threat of military occupation. Isaiah notes the coalition planned to replace Ahaz with an unknown ruler called the son of Tabil, who was loyal to the anti-Assyrian coalition. This is in Isaiah 7.6. The Syro-Ephraimite crisis in Ahab's response became the defining event of his reign. The crisis escalated into a war, which was uh, 735 to 734 B.C., and the Syro-Israelite coalition devastated the nation of Judah. So this is a big deal. It's only mentioned in these few verses, but it was very devastating and probably went, you know, for you know, that whole uh, year. So the conf uh, coalition inflicted heavy losses, and Israel took many Judean captives. The Philistines to the west and the Edomites to the south also took advantage of their weakened Judean neighbor. Now think about this, guys. This is strife. Because Israel and Judah, they're relatives. They're from the same people. You know, they were once a united kingdom. So now there's strife in the land between each other. This is Before, you didn't have Israel and Judah fighting each other. Now, tensions may have been a little bit high at times, but now we've got a full-on battle here. In the midst of this catastrophic invasion, the Chronicler records the gracious intervention of God through the prophet Obed, or Oded. Oded persuaded Israel to release their Judean captives by reminding them of their kinship with Judah, and he also warned them of God's wrath if they failed to do so, and that's in 2 Chronicles 28, 9-15. Earlier, Isaiah had advised Ahaz to trust the Lord's promises, promise to deliver Judah rather than joining the coalition or becoming an Assyrian vassal state. Ahab, or Ahaz did not realize that Assyria would have to deal with these nations on its own, and relief could have come without the immediate necessity of a tribute payment. Isaiah offered Ahaz the choice of any sign he desired to verify the divine promise, but Ahaz refused and appealed to Assyria for help. Tiglath marched swiftly to quell the Syrio-Israelite uh, coalition. He invaded Syria, captured Damascus, executed King Rezin. In order to pay tribute to Assyria, Ahaz plundered the temple, his palace, his noble treasuries, and it still was not enough. So that is set to do evil. That is exactly what I'm talking about. The prophet is telling this wicked king, just trust the Lord. You don't need to do that. Yeah, Isaiah wasn't just a prophet. He was a prophetic prognosticator, meaning he could see what was going on in nations. Like, you know, he could see like, okay, first of all, Assyria's got to deal with these guys anyway. So let's take advantage of that. Let's ask God to help us. Then you don't have to pay them anything because God's going to deal with it anyway, and he's got to fight them eventually anyway, so let's not get into that mess. This guy did not trust the Lord at all. And then he took his unfaithfulness even further. In 2 Chronicles, look at this, uh, 28, 20 through, through 27. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. <laughs> like you can hear the author is not happy with this guy. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods for the kings of Syria helped them, I'm going to sacrifice them so they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of the acts and all his ways from first to last, behold, they were written in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahab slept with his fathers, or Ahaz, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. This is awful. He shut up the house of God. Now, that right there is the end result of fear. Fear will cause you to eat poison. 
Fear will cause you to put your trust in things that actually will destroy you. That is exactly what's happening. And also back then, that's what they did. Whatever God defeated the other God, people worshipped that God. That's why Elijah's like, all right, you bring your God, I'll bring mine, we'll see who's the true one. Okay? You know, it was uh, MacArthur, I believe it was, World War II, when uh, Japan was defeated. And he had sent, he said, send Bibles. Mm -hmm. Because the J Japanese has decided their gods weren't strong, and yep. ours were. But instead, because we did not do that, they turned to money. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, there's I, I, I uh, have heard that too, but we did send in a lot of evangelists, but the way we did it was so seeker-friendly mm -hmm. that they just attached that to their money-making. I mean, it... it I, I don't... Sometimes, I just wonder if we have any sense whatsoever. <laughs> I don't get it. So... This is awful. It, this is like one of the saddest. This and then um, Ezekiel chapter 9 and 10 is to me one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. So in our historical source above, Ahaz replaced <coughs> Solomon's bronze, uh, and it should be altar, not later, in Jerusalem with a replica of the one in Damascus to the false god. So he replaced that. The people were to use this altar while he reserved the bronze altar for his own private use. He also began to practice, now I'm not going to say this, it looks like extra spicy, <laughs> the reading of animal entrails. To him, the Syrian gods were above Yahweh, so he closed the temple entirely and banned the worship of God. He was so wicked that when he died, they wouldn't bury him in the tombs of the kings. Now we get Hezekiah. I have a love, not so much love, relationship with Hezekiah. <laughs> I think he was a narcissist. I think he started out wanting to serve God, and then he's like, eh, who cares what happens as long as my life's okay. You know, that, that's so aggravating. But anyway, I want to read Isaiah 7, 1 through 14, because we're almost done. I want to read this, because it says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So there's a fear. Okay? And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful. Now, this anybody that battles fear, listen to what I'm about to say. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Okay? So, in other words, if, you, if you're going to open your mouth and speak fear, you're actually going to hasten what you're afraid of. So when you're in that place, because we've all had it, we've all had that gut punch, we've all had where fear, you can feel it, your blood is, you know, just all these chemicals get in there, your heart rate gets up, your mouth goes dry, you start sweating, right? We've all experienced those emotions. That is not the time to talk. Just be quiet, you know, and you, and then if you're going to say anything, say tongues. Just start praying in tongues. That's what I had to do when I had my working believer offering ready, my, you know, huge $25 that was like 250 at the time, had that, and then all of a sudden the gut punch, the fear came, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to get back in faith. How was I able to do that? Because I had a revelation. Okay, so it's too late. I already had the revelation, but it took me an hour to recover before I could go give my offering in faith. So, I'm going to say it again. Actually, Isaiah did. Well, the Lord did. Be careful. Don't make any decisions. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint. Now, listen to how he describes their problems. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because, excuse me, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia 
has divided evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Jerusalem, Judah and terrify it. Let, let us conquer it for ourselves. And set up the son of table as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Oh, stop. This was a religious response. He was faking them out. The Lord is saying, ask me for a sign. When God is telling you to ask for a sign, you're not putting him to the test. So this is a cop-out, right? He didn't have faith for what God was saying. And then he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. What? <laughs> you know, I... I was like, wow, this is a weird place to put that, right? And uh, <laughs> so, um, let, let's kind of dive into that. Huh, that's where that is. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the promise of the Messiah is given in the middle of Isaiah's conversation with King Ahaz. Now, his response is curt. You know, he's like, yeah, I'm not going to test the Lord. We know that's an excuse. He doesn't follow the Lord, therefore he sees no use. That's the real thing. But the word sign, it means signal, mark, or miracle. This word is used m most often to describe awe-inspiring events, like when God brought the Hebrews out of Egypt. Isaiah was encouraging Ahaz to ask God for a miracle out of the mess he was in. That's amazing. He's like, ask me anything and I'll do it to get you out of th this mess. I had a thought. Ahaz rebuffed God's offer of help. So Isaiah's like, okay, well, the Lord himself will give you a sign or miracle. God will become flesh. And a true king, who is also God, will dwell in the earth. Where man has failed, even amongst his own people, there is coming one who will not. Okay? Uh, the implication is that mankind's problems are rooted in lawlessness and he's going to solve that problem. It's a picture of his compassion and it's astonishing. I love that. Okay, now, here's my thought that came up while I was reading about this. Ahaz is a son of Uzziah. What happened to Uzziah? He uh, got leprosy. What did that mean? He had to be isolated. Everything we're seeing here, including fear, is a byproduct of fatherlessness. So how are you supposed to trust a father in heaven if you never had one on earth? Right? So that's what's happening. We're seeing the desolation of fatherlessness, which is why the enemy wants to destroy family units and fatherhood in America, and which is also why the Lord said, okay, the job of Elijah, which is a group of people operating under that anointing, you have one job. That is, turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers and the fathers back to their children. If you don't, I'm going to come and curse the earth. Right? So this is the byproduct of fatherlessness. So is fear. So if you get back to fear, it is a, a lack of trust in the character of father because there's been a fatherlessness or a father wounding that has opened that door. Now, Isaiah went on to inform Ahaz that the Assyrians would become Judah's greatest threat. Okay, In the Lexham uh, Bible Dictionary, Micah indirectly references Ahaz's wickedness several times in his prophecy. In his lament over the coming fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, Micah 1.9, he notes that Samaria's idolatry has infected the leadership of my people in Jerusalem. In his lawsuit against Judah, I thought that was funny, 
Micah accuses the people and leadership of implementing the regulations of Omri and the wicked practices of Jahab, uh, Ahab. <laughs> now I'm saying Jahab, Jahaz, Jah. It doesn't matter. I'm just adding J's to everything because they're everywhere in these names. Okay, so the prophet said that he that would lead to the, uh, the judgment of Judah. Uh, Micah, Malachi, uh, Nahum, uh, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all of them were um, prophesying that. Ahab's practices included child sacrifice and wet, widespread Baalism. Since Micah prophesied during the reigns of Jotham and Hezekiah, and Samaria's judgment has not yet come, he's likely condemning Ahaz. Question. Mm -hmm. He's given him the sign of a child, a baby, knowing that he sacrificed his own son. Mm -hmm. mm. Is that the where maybe he's that's interesting. Plucking at the heart right He there. might be. He might be. I didn't think about that. Yep. You killed yours. I'm going to give mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. That might bring that. Because it seems like it's random. <laughs> it's definitely random. <laughs> you know. Yeah, all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, he's going to give this sign. But I'm just wondering if that has to do with his former, his practices that he's Could be. doing. Could be. All right, well, let's finish up with this uh, guy. So we're in verse uh, 10 of 2 Kings 16. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet with Tiglath, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was as, at Damascus, and uh, King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of it and its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar uh, in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came, he viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering, grain offering and poured his drink offering and drew the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord. And he put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, oh, the, uh, On the great altar burned a morning burnt offering, an evening grain offering, and the king's burnt offering, and his grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering, their drink offering, and throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did this as King Ahaz commanded, which I think Uriah is just as dumb as Ahaz. So King Ahaz cut off uh, the frames of the stands, removed the basin from them. He took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put uh, it on a stone pedestal. And the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts that he did are they not written in the Chronicles? And Ahaz, Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And then Hezekiah, his son, uh, reigned in its place. Okay, so again, I, I, you know, fatherlessness is obviously, and because he didn't have a father, he, you know, obviously gave up his own son. But I want to go back a bit. Before we do, well, he removed the canopy in deference to the king of Assyria. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about the, the canopy is a symbolic of the bride and the groom, mm -hmm. and that uh, the marriage, yeah, and the covering. He of divorced the God. them. So yes, that's yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think that's interesting. That indifference. It's hard to not to get else. just aggravated with this guy, because I mean he just he set his heart to remove God mm -hmm. from everything. Mm -hmm. um, okay, now he did it because the king of Assyria, implying that he was now owned. Right? He's now owned by Tiglath. And he had to do these things or suffer consequences. But back in Isaiah 7, in verse 2, it says, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the people shook. Fear causes us to do crazy things, especially if your own heart condemns you. So that's why it's so important to just deal with things as Holy Spirit brings them up so you don't have that thing hanging on you. If you don't have... Full confidence that God has your back. Fear can paralyze and cause you to make really bad decisions. But here's the thing. God knew that Ahaz was scared spitless, so he sent his prophet to reassure him of his deliverance in spite of his conduct, and Ahaz snubbed him. 
The main picture I want you to see here is Ahaz is the one who is offended, and most likely he's offended at God. Because what happened? His dad goes into the temple to offer sacrifices and to get out of bounds, and it says God struck him with leprosy. So he lost his father because of God. A lot of people believe that kind of stuff even today. Right? So, the idea of hating God so much that you'll literally do everything you can avoid Him, even to the point of shutting down His house, sacrificing your own child on the altar, and all that, that after He offers you a helping hand is absolutely astonishing. It's incredibly sad. Can't imagine how the Father felt about it. Rejection is one of the deepest cuts to a heart, especially when you try to help someone that doesn't even deserve it. But Hezekiah wasn't as bad, thank goodness. Um, his own actions did lead to some of what happened to Judah, but he definitely wanted to follow the Lord to the best of his ability. But I do. I think all that Ahaz did was a fatherlessness mindset, and he was offended with God. So, you know, that it shows up in Christianity all the time. It does. Why God take my dad? Why God take my daughter? Why did God do this? Why, why, why did God allow this? Why didn't he stop this? Why, why, why? Those are the wrong questions to ask. You can ask why. Those are just the wrong ones. You'll never get the answer you're seeking because he didn't. <laughs> so then the question becomes, okay, so why did that happen? So if Father had nothing to do with it, then there has to be another expl explanation. Like when the disciples are like, well, we, why couldn't we cast him out? And he's like, well, because of unbelief. You know, they got themselves all involved in doctrinal disputes and uh, discussions with the religious leaders instead of staying focused on the task at hand because they'd already cast those demons out. It didn't matter. So be aware of subtle offense toward God. Be aware. Do you think that's why we have a lot of people that are... In, in the name of not offending anyone, we are trying to take God out of everything. Well, absolutely. You know, you know let's take him out of the schools because we might offend one atheist person that's sitting there that might come along every 20 years, whatever, you know. Um, now, let's, we, it's important to take God out of this, out of that. You know, we've got to be the equalizers and the... And it makes you wonder, as far as judgments and, in a way, I think we're judging ourselves when you go get to that point. Mm -hmm. You're making your decisions. It's, yeah. not God, it's not that God's judging you. He's allowing judgment to come. If you go over and decide to camp out with the enemy, you're going to get enemy results, right? If truth is judgment and we deny truth... You know, mm -hmm. then there it comes. And then, I mean, like, when the end of the age comes and the seal's broken and things start to escalate, right? It even says in the book of Revelation that people will try to cover themselves or they'll go into caves and they'll curse God. Mm -hmm. They'll shake their fists in His face. See, the thing is, is that people are like, well, you know, God that's love, I mean, I just can't see Him sending people to hell. He knows the depravity of uh, the human heart. He knows all that's in there. We don't. So he knows whether that person will, you know, would be a good place, you know, like heaven would be a good place for them. There's no way love would allow someone wicked where he dwells because it puts everybody else at risk, right? And I, I don't know if we're doing it because we don't want to offend other people. I think it's people with legitimate agendas mm -hmm. to remove God out because they hate him. That's the motivation I behind it. I think it is, but the people that sit back there and watch it, complacency. Is, I think uh, the complacency, because we've done that as mm -hmm. Christians, because we do not want to offend somebody. Right. And you know what? We're better to offend them and alone go to heaven as to, you know, not offend yep. and, and watch them just go straight to And a lot of that. Um, is also not understanding the Constitution and all that, too. Mm -hmm. we, we were founded uh, on Christian uh, principles and practices, mm -hmm. and uh, we were a Christian nation. Even the Supreme Court held, upheld that. So then you start, well, what about you know Islam? What about Satanism? No, 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 no. We were not founded on those. 
So they, they don't even apply to, you know, taking God out. And there's like, I think in uh, Oklahoma, they still have the, you know, Satan with the little kids standing around them on the courthouse. It's stupid. It's all dumb. Anyway, this is kind of a depressing story. <laughs> Gigi, do you have one more joke? <laughs> all right. Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your word. And, I mean, you're, you're God. You're not a man. Actually, Jesus became man, but he's still, you know, God. Um, you know, the way you process things, the way you view things is uh, outside of our realm. Uh, thank goodness Holy Spirit reveals those things to us. But I can't imagine what that felt like during that time. Uh, but I want you to know this morning how much we love you. Uh, you're a good father. You're good all the time. No evil comes from you. Uh, nothing wicked. You don't even have a shadow in your person. You're absolute light. And so I just want to confess that. That we love you. We trust you. We know you're committed to us. We're committed to you. And we want to show you to people. We, we want to give people an encounter with you as father. With you in uh, fatherhood. Because we have an orphaned uh, planet. We have an orphaned people. And we are, are, we're seeing the effects of fatherlessness in society. And uh, Father, also, I just want to apologize for complacency. You know, like Kathy was saying, just sat back and watched you being removed from every sphere of society. And while we arrogantly just decided that society was going to hell in a handbasket and we'll just complacency, complacently watch it happen while we wait for a rapture. And so, Father, I ask that you forgive us for that mentality. And I know what you're doing, the leaven that you are sowing into culture, into society is going to be extremely powerful and extremely necessary as the end of the age approaches. So, Father, we are committed to um, expanding your kingdom, to being leaven sown in 